Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 219, recorded October 31st, Halloween 2015. So today we finish up Mirror Images miniseries by IDW. And uh, because there was only two issues left, four and five, we have also snuck in Alien Spotlight Cardassians. Oh, yes. And that Alien Spotlight's pretty good. I like that one. Right. This is from the, the second miniseries. So they did they did a, a series of five Alien Spotlights, and then like a year or so later, they did Alien Spotlight 2, and then Cardassians was one of the issues of that one. Right. So... They're all available on uh, graphic novel format, so you can find them fairly easily. Yeah, and the prices aren't that bad either. Right. Well, like two bucks? Uh, if you buy the individual issues, yeah, you can get it for like two bucks. Yeah. Which is cheaper than the cover price, so. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> you, get it, and you get it right away. <laughs> oh, if you buy it on Comixology? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've been a big fan of Comixology here lately, just... Uh, Filling in some of my, uh, you know, random issues that I had gaps in. Right. But also, you pretty much switched over to electronic. You don't really buy paper books much anymore. Nope. No, I've, I've pretty much moved over to just the digital formats, either Comixology for the Star Trek stuff, and DC and Marvel, and then Dark Horse has their own thing, so. Yep. Well, I'm still getting the real comics, but. I pared down to mostly just getting the ongoing, and then the Green Lantern ones, and then the other rest, everything else I get on uh, Comixology and other vendors like you. So, uh, yeah, the one thing I miss about going this route is mm-hmm. I miss going to the comic book store, because I love to go to the comic book store just to pick up that month's worth of issues, and then there was all this other stuff that you didn't know you needed, but you do. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're saving money. I I guess so. Yeah. But I'm also I feel like I'm missing out on, on that experience. Well, yeah. So that fifth Spider-Man mug that you really didn't need, but <laughs> right, right. Yep. Okay. So anyway, so uh, so yeah, these these IDW stuffs pre- pretty darn good. It is. Uh, the first three issues of the uh, Mirror Images was really good, and now wrapping up the story and finding out what the heck happens. Right. So just just so that everybody knows, the first two issues were Captain Pike and Commander Kirk, and Commander Kirk's trying to weasel his way into the captaincy. And then for issue three, we suddenly <clears throat> jumped forward in time and had Picard taking over his command. So now, with four, we're back in Kirk's time. Exactly. And it's just such a cool thing, because in this universe, this parallel dimension, there's none of the kind of safety nets, or not much, that we experience in, like, our uh, mostly play-it-by-the-rules kind of world. Promotion through assassination is a perfectly valid form that people go through. So whenever you're a captain, you got to always be looking over your shoulder. Um, right. 
that would be an exciting kind of situation to be in, but man, that would kind of suck. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you would never never be able to not be looking over your shoulder. Exactly. So, all right. Shall we proceed? Yeah, let's do so. Okay. Um, I have issue number four, which is actually chapter three in the graphic novel, and also pages 71 through 73 in the graphic novel, depending what you might be reading this from. I'm just going with the graphic novel date, February of 2009, because that's really all I know. That's all I have is a graphic novel. The creative team is all the same. Writer Scott and David Tipton, artist David Messina, art assistants by Sarah Picelli, letterer Chris Mari, Robbie Robbins, and Neil Yataki. I guess they traded which issues they did. Colorist, again, I just mentioned a minute ago. Co-editor Scott Dunbuyer, cover art and color Joe Corny. Collection edits, and of course that's just for the graphic novel, Justin Isinger. Collection design, Neil Yataki. Scotty and Kirk are sitting at a table in a mess hall. Scotty is telling Kirk why he has not finished installation of his mystery device. He makes a series of excellent points, but Kirk has none of it. He tells Scotty he will have no more excuses. He needs that device up and running now. A very worried Scotty states it will be done when it will be done, and he will not hear any more about it. Kirk smiles at Scotty standing up to him and puts his arm around the engineer's neck and shoulders as they walk out of the mess hall. Kirk says it will be done when it is done. In Pike's quarters, the captain is speaking to Spock. Spock reports that his investigation into Kirk's activities has surfaced little. If Kirk is planning something, he is being very careful to cover his tracks. Pike suggests that Spock have some more of his people talk to Kirk in that special way. He thinks McCoy knows more than he's telling. Pike is informed an encrypted message has arrived from Imperial Command. Orders telling Pike to get to the Rashid system, where an advanced Klingon D7 prototype has reportedly crashed. They are to get there ahead of the Klingons and acquire all the ship's secrets. Crew is of secondary importance to getting the ship's secrets. Pike sees this as an opportunity to get rid of Kirk on this mission and tell Spock. Kirk will be going on a walkabout. His last walkabout. <laughs> Later, Pike calls a meeting in the briefing room. He tells them about their mission to recover all they can from the crashed Klingon D7 prototype. It's on Rashid 7, where conditions are brutally cold. Other than that, they don't know much about the planet. Commander Kirk will lead the landing party, who will take the ship's computer core, weapon specs, and anything else they can lay their hands on. Kirk says this assignment is truly an honor through an impassive face. After the meeting, Kirk tells McCoy this mission is a death sentence. McCoy tells him he has no choice but to lead the landing party, try to find a way to turn it to his advantage. Kirk and his party are beamed down into icy conditions. Worse, electrical storms are interfering with sensors, communications, and the transporters. Icing on the cake are the large, moving life forms they picked up. They think they might be Klingons. As Kirk and his party make their way to the crash site, something dark and hairy is watching them. The D7 prototype is in pieces and partially covered with snow. 
they use a phaser rifle to cut their way through a bulkhead in the neck of the prototype to gain access and make their way to the bridge in the forward pod. They came across dead Klingon bodies, but noticed that they are intact, so it's unlikely they died by the impact of the crash or by explosive decompression. Henshaw spots puncture wounds in some of the bodies. Kirk asks Henshaw for his conclusions based on his observations, since he has apparently decided to play Dr. McCoy today. Before Henshaw can say anything further, a huge hairy humanoid with a spear-like weapon jumps down from the ceiling. Henshaw blasts it with his phaser rifle. Kirk compliments him on his reflexes. They continue to the bridge. They find the hole in the hull the beast entered through. Another beast starts coming through the hole. Two more follow. One of Kirk's team takes a spear to the throat. Rather than blasting the three beasts, Kirk orders them to double-time it to the bridge. The beasts are fast and start to catch up. Kirk and Henshaw the only ones that enter the bridge and shut the blast door behind them. Kirk detaches the computer core and the two transport back to the Enterprise just ahead of the beast's entry to the bridge. Pike, Spock, and the bodyguard are in the transporter room waiting. Pike asks for Kirk's report. Kirk tells him everything he asks for is in this computer core, which he throws to Pike's bodyguard. Visibly displeased, Pike says, Well done, Commander. Kirk tells Henshaw he handled himself very well and offers to transfer him to Kirk's personal staff. Henshaw likes the sound of that. Scotty enters and tells Kirk his device is installed and ready. Kirk is happy and says, let's take a look. Later, Pike and Spock are in Pike's office. The captain is very unhappy and asking how Kirk came out of this smelling like a rose. Pike says it's time to stop playing this delicately. It's down to him and me now. Kirk is watching and listening to Pike via his new toy. To be continued. Bum, bum, bum. Mm-hmm. I still don't understand how this, what is it called, the Tantalus machine or something like yeah, that? Yeah, something like that. Still not quite sure how this thing works with being able to see things without a camera, but it is handy. Well, yeah, and then remote control destroying things. And well, I'll buy it. I can buy that one. If you can have a transporter, exactly. I'll buy it. I'll buy yeah. it. We you talked about this before. Right. Is it some spin on a transporter? Very handy device. We've seen it in several Mirror Universe stories, and it's doing the job. Right. Exactly. So I really like Pike's mounting paranoia. I mean, he's totally right not to trust the people around him, since Kirk seems to be moving his pieces in position for checkmate, but I think he's showing signs of buckling under the pressure. That he's making some mistakes, or what do you mean? I think Pike shows signs of buckling under the pressure of realizing that many of the people around him are in Kirk's court. Oh, right. And Kirk seems to be able to, you know, kind of like, just sashay his way out of these traps he's laying. So, And there's something in the next issue that's going to make him even more nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. But that thing I talked about at the beginning, if you're the captain in this universe, you constantly have to be worried about somebody beneath you wanting to kill you and take your place. And it's like, how can you ever trust your second-in-command, your number one? Ever. Right. I just... I don't see how this thing works, how this whole thing 
this way of ascending to command works. Anyway, it's probably why they uh, in the United States. Yeah. At the beginning, if you ran for president and you lost, right, then you became vice president. That's probably why they quit doing that because you would have to always be looking over your shoulder. This is the guy, oh. and uh, they might they might really want to be president. You know, in all my years of social studies <laughs> in high school, I don't remember ever hearing that. That's very interesting. Huh. So, like, in the 17, late 1700s, 1800s, they did that? Huh. Well, now you're going to have me second-guess myself, and maybe I just misquoted. But, yeah, that's the way I, I remember it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, there you go. Well, yeah, so you, wrote, you want to pick your own second-in-command. If right. you're president. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah, but, I mean, especially in this universe, you'd want to pick your second-in-command rather than having Starfleet do it. Right. You know? It's like, hmm. Anyway. Right. And I, I I never understood. So if the guy who has to clean the Enterprise's toilets, yeah. if, if he kills Pike, would he become captain? I hope I not. I mean, or would the second-in-command then become captain because... There still is a hierarchy, and just you know, I, I, I really think there's st- there's still a hierarchy. I, I really hope it's the latter. Right. It's the, it's the same problem I always had with uh, you know when you had the Klingon episodes on Star Trek: The Next Generation, and, and they talk oh. about that's how you become captain is you kill your captain. Right. And I always thought, well, how would that work? Because everybody would just be killing everybody, and you know, yeah, I just never understood, never understand that uh, how that would work. Right. Yeah, and of course you always know, as we've seen in several episodes, that the Doctor, or even the second-in-command, can relieve the Captain of Duty if they have good reason. But that's not the same thing as sticking a knife in the Captain and taking over. Right, absolutely. Fully legally. I mean, it's completely legal. It's fine. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. And not only legal, it's the agreed-upon method. right. So basically, there really is no pension plan for ship's captains. <laughs> nope. Okay. I guess you're they save money until way. you're dead. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. Hmm. Or maybe you move on to being a general or whatever. Well, right. Admiral. Awesome. Admiral. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about pressure to keep uh, ascending the ranks. So there are five members in Kirk's landing party. But by the time they reach the bridge, there is only Henshaw and Kirk. Okay, so my first time reading this, I was like, huh? Wait a minute. They had like five guys before. And I'm flipping back and it's like, yeah, they definitely had like five guys. And then um, I didn't notice, but there's in one of the panels, there's, you know, one of the uh, beasts are putting a a spear tip through one of the other guy's necks. So it's like, okay, I didn't notice that the first time. But apparently something similar to that got the other guys. So. Got the other ones, right? Right. Yeah, no, Henshaw and Kirk just leave the other guys to slow them down. Right. Yep. So I do find it funny that of all the people that live, it's Kirk and Henshaw. Right. And why is that? Well, I mean, Kirk obviously has to live because we've seen the episode that comes after this and right. he's still alive. Right. But Henshaw may may have a, a bigger part in a, in the next issue. We don't know that yet, though. I know. But I just find it funny, knowing what I know then, that he happens to be the one that lives through this. Right. 
And and quite frankly, I didn't go into all the details, but Henshaw proved to be a pretty sharp cookie. I mean, he oh, was yeah. figuring out all kinds of things that Kirk seemed to be totally in the dark about. Right, like getting through the doors and stuff like that. And, you know, noticing the condition that the Klingons were in. I mean, he's the guy that was saying, hey, these guys got bite marks in their neck. And they're not like splattered bits of goo on the hull. Right. So, you know, they didn't die by trauma of the landing. So what? Which I find difficult to believe, too, because that D7 is in pieces. Well, it has internal dampeners, uh, inertial well, dampeners. Inertial so dampeners. You can have a wreck and you still stand straight. <laughs> I guess you're right. I guess you're right. So at least the inertial dampeners uh, kept working all the way through. Right. So I did think it's funny the Klingons were in the original Taz uniforms, but they had the uh, next generation bumpy heads. Yeah. A nice little mixture of the two. Right. Like we said before, how do they reconcile that? Now that we're used to bumpy heads, but I, I, I personally, I want to see them all retro. I'd want to see one hundred percent personal preference. If you're doing an old episode like this, do them like they were in the Taz series. Right. Sorry, that's what I'd want to see. But I agree. I mean, you got the uniform, so might as well just have the uh, mustache look and and call it a day. <laughs> exactly. I completely agree. So uh, my big complaint with this issue, what? with these creatures, mm-hmm. I-, I wanted them to be Gorn. <laughs> Gorns. Right, because in that uh, the Mirror Mirror universe, or the Mirror Mirror episode of Deep Space Nine, or I'm sorry, Enterprise, boy, I'm all over the place. The Mirror Universe episode of Enterprise had Archer fighting a Gorn. Right. In the Mirror Universe, which explained still why in our Prime Universe, Kirk is the first person to fight a Gorn. But I thought, well, this would be great because then they could say, "Hey, this is the, this is the Gorn species that Archer fought way back when." They could have easily tied it into that episode since technically this is supposed to be the same continuity as that story. Okay, so you're saying that this is a, so they'd have to drop the primitive part then, right? Because these are supposed to be primitive, still intelligent to some degree, but primitive. Uh, life forms, so they couldn't be primitive anymore if that was the case. Right, but I mean, but but Archer's fight with the Gorn was very similar to this. The the Gorn was hiding in the air ducts and coming through the the hole and things like that. Um, so I mean, the fight that they have with these creatures, right, very reminiscent of that Gorn scene in uh, was it Mirror Darkly, right, uh, Part Two. Mm-hmm. So they could have easily. I mean, they're obviously, you know maybe inadvertently referencing that episode just by having this situation the way it is. I mean, why not just go full force and have it as a Gorn? Right. Interesting thought. Interesting. And then you could still, then you could even make reference to that episode and then make (laughs) all of us fanboys happy that Enterprise did do, (laughs) that Enterprise did happen. You mean somebody actually watched it? There you go. I gotta tell you, Donovan, that never really occurred to me, but uh, that would have been interesting. Yes. Yes, there you go. They have so many other references to, you know, the old episodes and different episodes. Why not uh, Enterprise? Right. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of which, it was interesting. Phaser rifles. 
Love the classic phaser rifle, the original phaser rifle they used in Where No Man Has Gone Before. Love it that they're using it so much in this one. Mm-hmm. It's still it's still a, an ungainly design, but man, I I just love that design. Those are great. And you you have that prop, right? I I have I have a prop that looks like it. Yes. Is it mounted on your wall? It is not. And then you have like a Gorn head above it, as if that's that's what you killed it with. No. It's Isn't a, that what it's hunters a, do? It's in a stand-up uh, thing. You put, you know, so it doesn't it doesn't go on the wall. Oh, uh, okay. But that idea about getting a Gorn head, hmm, it is Halloween. I might be able to get a Gorn mask really cheap in a, another day or two. Mm. Good luck finding a Gorn mask at a store. Well, on the web. Are you kidding? Okay. Yeah, maybe the web. Maybe the web. Exactly. I did want to mention real quick, Ken, uh, that the, uh, the bodyguard you referenced mm-hmm. that's there on the transporter pad with Pike, you think he's Cupcake? From the movie? No, I don't think he's cupcake <laughs> at all. I mean, he's a big red shirt with a mustache. Didn't, didn't... <laughs> cupcake? Didn't cupcake have very sparse hair? Well, this is the mirror universe cupcake. Okay, with a full head of black hair. Yes, exactly. Well, okay. Also, the issues originally came out in late two thousand eight. Two thousand eight, right? Okay. Oh, so, so that predates the movie. It predates the movie. Ah, uh, bummer. God, you, you just love to make these connections. <laughs> I just thought it was random that they introduced this big burly, burly guy. guy. Well, um, you know it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, for the most part, Pike isn't stupid. Right. You know? I mean, if you were going to be in this position we've been talking about on and off through this episode, <laughs> I'd want to be have a big nasty guy around too as my bodyguard that I could trust. Right. Not that it'll do him much good soon, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so definitely definitely, I was wondering, at this point, I was really wondering if Spock ended up being on Kirk's side. You definitely know that McCoy is on Kirk's side. Scotty's pretty much on Kirk's side. You know, I mean, the old, how much of the old crew actually is on Kirk's side, but we just don't know yet. Spock certainly looks like he's not on Kirk's side at all. Right, but, but I think that's just because Vulcans are weak-willed in, in this mirror universe. Ah, weak-willed? They just willed? go with whoever's in, well, whoever's exactly. in charge. Exactly. That's the logical person to follow. Because that's the thing. You know in the mirror universe episode, Spock is there, and he's supporting Kirk. So, right. you know, here he is, definitely appears to be in Pike's court. So either he's on Kirk's side or he's doing just what you say. He's he's a logical guy. He can bend with the breeze, with the prevailing winds, and end up, you know, supporting Kirk after he takes over. Because you know right. he's going to take over. He it's you obviously Pike's going to be on the outs here at some point. So um, and of course I know I read all of them, so I know when he is. But I'm not, I want to spoil anything. But um, <laughs> anyway, I just I just find it interesting, especially since they're playing up uh, Pike's yeoman, showing her so much. Like I said before, they made such a point of showing her, and she is lovely, by the way, new yeoman, and Kirk went out of his way to stab his old yeoman. So right. he's. it sounds like he's sliding her in, too. So there's just a lot of... So many pieces are being moved into place around Pike without him knowing it. I'm just wondering about Spock. 
At, at this point, when I was reading the comic, I was wondering about Spock. So this is not me looking backwards. These were my thoughts before I had read the last issue. Right, right. No, I, I was thinking that uh, you know Spock was just. It's logical to follow so and so, right? And that's what I'm doing. And, and I think I think the same thing. But when I was reading at this point, I was thinking the same thing. But I also was thinking of the possibility. Right. And I was thinking, how, how could you really trust somebody like that? I mean, unless they really are that robotic and they just follow whoever it is and they don't have any ambition of their own. Right. I mean, I don't know. Can you really trust anybody that, that was already a double agent or a triple agent or whatever, like McCoy is and Scotty seems to be? And It's just, man, it's all over the place. Well, definitely McCoy. Pike is very certain that McCoy is on Kirk's side. Right. So he already knows he's a double agent. Pretty much. So. Does he? I think he does. Mm. Didn't Pike already say? Yeah. Kirk. Well, yeah, he speculated. He speculated. I mean, he did it right to McCoy's face. Right. And said, you bring me something better than this because I'm not so sure I should trust you. And here's why. And he makes a, a good argument. But then McCoy did give the information, so I, well, I was thinking he, that he's still on he, Kirk, uh, still on Pike's side. He gave weak information. Weak mm. information that Pike says isn't good enough. Doesn't tell me enough about what Kirk's up to. Anyway. Right. Yeah, he does say that he, he thinks McCoy knows more than he's talking about. Right. So he's just yeah. leaving – he's leaving McCoy in play because he probably doesn't see a lot of benefit in taking him out of the picture now because how much can McCoy do? But at least I think mm. that's what Pike is thinking. But right, that is interesting that you brought up the Yeoman. You know, we talked about her last mm -hmm. week. That uh, we we speculated that that's why she was there, but she's not in these two issues at all. So if if he was maneuvering her into something, well, are, are, you, it, are it, you are you telling us how the story ends before we actually get to the fifth issue? I'm just saying you reminded me that I did not see her. <laughs> yes. It's not much of a spoiler because I'm not saying she's she, she's just not in the issue, right? Okay, so when we get to the end, we should definitely take a uh, accounting <laughs> <laughs> of who was with Kirk and who isn't. All right, but again, that you know that Kirk strategic mind, he's planning this out well ahead of time, and the pieces right. are falling into place. And then where things do go off the plan. You know, that Kirk Luck kit kicks in. Yep. Okay. So my last comment is I liked how cocky Kirk was when he beams back up to the ship. Yeah. <laughs> the, and he's like, hey, here's the computer core. And, I mean, he's just like that, – that really reminded me of the, the cocky young Kirk that we saw in the movie, which, like you just pointed out, actually is after this issue. Right. Yeah. So uh, he throws the computer core – at Mongo, the uh, <laughs> the bodyguard, yeah, the bodyguard of, of Pike. Here you go, Mongo. He doesn't call him Mongo. I'm calling him Mongo. So so handy that that computer core is in such a nice little handleable package, isn't it? Right. And that it was just sticking right up there on the uh, console, the D7. Isn't that great? Did, hey. did did you ever envision that the Enterprise's mainframe? You know, it seems like there's one central computer in the entire in the entire ship. Very right. 1960s uh, mainframe vision of what computers are. But did you ever think that 
that computer would be or at least have some of its memory modules in a thing about the size of a toaster oven. I did not. I thought it would be this big round sphere thing with all these lights and stuff in it. Right. It'd be something like that, exactly. Lots of lights and then, you know, tape drives going all the time. Right. <laughs> like all computers back then have that. Anyway, I just thought it was a little little handy. Right. And again, they're insinuating that the Klingons did not die when they crashed, or at least enough of them didn't, that they were then killed by the beasts. Right. Um, if you had a prototype, a secret prototype, and there was the possibility of it falling into enemy's hands, wouldn't you want to have some kind of uh, self-destruct ability? Oh, yeah. Obviously, that if that... would wipe the core? Or something, or blow the whole thing up. So they couldn't learn anything from it. Obviously, that if that was in place, it failed. So I'm just kind of wondering about that. But yeah, I think all ships should, should be uh, set like the Predator ship, so that if you ever died, then it's just a big nuclear explosion. Boom. Oh, yeah, that's a very good point. So when the Predator blew up in the original movie. I thought it was the thing on his arm that blew up. And to this day, until you just said what you just said, I thought that was the bomb on his arm. But you're saying that that explosion was really from the Predator's ship that was nearby, or nearby enough, anyway? Yeah. That makes more yeah, sense. I'm sure it was the ship. That makes more sense. Because that was a pretty small device, but... Hmm. Right. No, it was, the, it was the ship, because he didn't want to leave any technology back oh, for sure. the, you know, for the the game to take the fight to them. Exactly. Huh. Interesting. Good point. So it was just a remote control. Okay, back to this. I think I have one more. No, I don't. I'm done. Let's do do the last one. Let's find out what happens, man. All right, real quick. uh, The cover for issue number four, since you didn't mention it because you're reading the graphic novel. Right. uh, It shows, like, Chekhov in some sort of Grimace of pain, and then uh, behind or below him, you see Ahura in her little bikini thing holding a knife, and then to the side of her is Sulu in his red shirt holding a phaser. And then you see like the uh, the Empire's logo in the back, kind of on fire. Cool. So, all right. Well, I will go ahead and jump into issue number five. Then this came out November of two thousand and eight. Uh, the writing staff, Ken, already mentioned for issue number four. So the cover for this one shows a glowing Starfleet swoosh in the middle of the page. And it looks kind of like a sun of some sort. So it's all golden light. So behind this logo, we to either side, we see the faces of Kirk and Pike. And below the Starfleet logo, we see a bearded Spock. And then flying out of the Starfleet swoosh and straight towards the reader is the ISS Enterprise. So the story starts with Pike using a pain stick or a pain button type thing on Henshaw. As we recall, Henshaw was the sole survivor along with Kirk from that last issue. Pike is none too pleased that this man did not kill Kirk in the last issue. Henshaw, in his pain, says that he never had a chance due to the attacking aliens. Pike tells the man that this better not happen next time, and he leaves with Spock. 
Pike and Spock talk about whether Henshaw can be trusted or not, or if he's now on the side of Kirk. Spock tells him that it, he did seem to be telling the truth about the aliens and the situation down on the planet. Pike tells Spock that he has plans for someone named Lee to take out Kirk permanently. Spock agrees that this is a logical plan, and he returns to the bridge. Later, in Pike's quarters, Pike is talking to the large security man from the last issue, who we now know is Lee. And he's talking about taking out Kirk permanently. The man agrees, and as he's stepping out of the room, he disintegrates into a red flash of light. Pike is dumbfounded on how Kirk has accomplished this. All the while, Kirk is watching these events in his quarters, laughing up a storm. Later, we see McCoy in a pain chamber, and Pike is asking him a lot of questions. McCoy, after much suffering, breaks and tells Pike that Kirk has a machine in his quarters where he can monitor and remove anyone from the ship that he wishes. Meanwhile, back in sickbay, Kirk is in the process of putting the moves on a hot blonde named Nurse Chapel. Just when it's starting to get hot and heavy, Kirk realizes that McCoy is late, and he's never late for his ships, so there must be something wrong. He breaks his embrace with Nurse Chapel and rushes to his quarters to use the Tantalus machine to find out what's going on. Once the door is open, he's actually greeted by Pike. Pike is holding his phaser sideways, gangsta style, and he starts to question Kirk instead of just blasting him. This is a big mistake since it allows Kirk to get in close enough to deliver a quick kick. With the phaser knocked away, a five-page epic brawl between the two men ensues. Each man seems to be equally able to beat the other one, so there's no true winner. The fight eventually ends when Henshaw arrives, and he turns his phaser onto Captain Pike. Kirk is able to adjust the machine and vaporize the former captain. But before doing so, Pike's last words are that he needs to enjoy this victory, because it will be the last happiness he will ever have while he sits in the command chair. Later, Kirk and Spock discuss how everything went just according to plan. It seems that Spock was siding with Kirk all along. The two enter the bridge, and the crew all stand up and exclaim their loyalty with a salute. As Kirk takes his seat and sees the sideways glances from all the other crew, Kirk is reminded of Pike's final words, that there will be no happiness as long as he sits in that chair. The end. <laughs> ah, yes. So there was a fight, a mono mono fight, but in the end, Kirk's chess-playing abilities won the day. By getting exactly. that getting that last piece. So I don't think that Henshaw was ever part of his original plan. But Kirk just continued collecting people. And it's a good thing he collected Henshaw. Right. Yeah, so I, I hear what you're saying. But I also, I, and I didn't mention it in the synopsis, that when Kirk starts the fight, he does hit a button on his communicator. Yes, so I kind of wondered if he called Henshaw. I think he did. So then Henshaw was was in on it, or at least was siding with the captain, or siding oh, no. with Kirk. Okay, so what I'm saying is, originally, he Henshaw was not part of Kirk's original plan, but then after right. they got back from the D7 prototype, okay, he right. actually came out and said, how do you like the sound of joining my personal staff? 
And then Henshaw said, I'm just fine with that. Probably right. probably thinking that Pike was going to kick his ass uh, for not killing Kirk. Right, exactly. Okay. So I'm saying he wasn't part of the original calculation, but in the last, in issue four, which is pretty far down the road, you know, he continued collecting people, including Henshaw. Right. Right. And he's right. lucky he did. Right. But he could have basically called anybody who had a phaser. He could have. It didn't have to be Henshaw. He could have. But it's a good thing Henshaw was on speed dial. <laughs> he, he, he only could touch that one button. Oh, yeah. It's a good thing that Henshaw was on speed dial mm-hmm. and that Pike is stupid enough to be close enough and slow enough that Kirk could do a kick. Oh, I'm so upset about that. It's like, okay, Pike is not an idiot. He's very capable. (laughs) And Kirk looks like he's got a – he looks like Kirk is young and limber. But come on. Getting your leg up in the air, traveling all that distance to Pike's hand, Pike could easily have – Exactly. Pike could easily have – Pull the trigger, and the time it took Kirk to raise his leg. Right. I hated that. Nope. I hated that. I, I wish that Pike should have just stunned him. You know, if he really did want to know all these answers, stun him as soon as right the door off the opens. bat, and then be smart. Tie him up, let him wake up, and then question him. Exactly. May, you know, maybe you would have cut off his ear by that point, but at least you know, at least have him bound. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, that so wasn't upset. very smart. No. And up until this point. They both seemed very, you know, they all had their own pieces of the, you know, they all had their chess pieces moving. So he seemed like he was a capable captain up until this one point. Right. And I kind of liked him. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, in the end, he turned out to be kind of a jerk. I mean, there were some things he did that were jerk-like, but I always liked Pike. I thought Pike was a great captain. I wish I would have seen more of Pike. Right. Uh, So when there was that, um, what, that, that captain... Uh, series with IDW and they showed you know what Pike had done at least right. in one issue I thought that was great I'd love to see more of that yeah well too bad we've already read all the, the Pike episodes yeah or all the Pike issues but no he, he's he's a good captain I liked him a yeah. lot mm-hmm. until this issue until this one <laughs> this one page exactly where you gotta scratch your head and say you're not very smart <laughs> and he's holding the gun all 90 degrees like a <laughs> I like I like the way you described that like a gangsta, gangsta style. Uh, Which the, it, it makes sense because there's no sights on it anyway, so there's really oh, no. no advantage to holding it upright. I mean, well, that's just how you. With a normal gun, you hold it upright because you want to use the sights to hit the person you're actually trying to sure. shoot. But when the person's yeah. like four feet in front of you, you can right. you can be creative. What the heck? Yeah, with a phaser, there's no uh, recoil. So it's like, oh, yeah, oh, there you go. Oh, yeah, good point. It's, it's even easier to do it. Exactly. Right. Should, we should see it more often. Right. So uh, Kirk is doing Nurse Chapel. That is so funny. And that does not look at all like Nurse Chapel. No, it does not. No. In the parallel universe, she's a lot hotter. So, But <laughs> in the movie... Or in the second reboot movie, Into Darkness, there's a reference to Christine Chapel being an ex uh, Concord of Kirk's, new Chris Pine Kirk. 
Oh, so, that's right. you know, this comic book set the precedent, but, you know, uh, they reinforced the possibility in, uh, in the movie. In right. Well, in the first movie, don't they make reference to Chapel? She's like off screen. Yeah, like during the one of the the scenes where McCoy is taking command of uh, m- the medical bay, he he says something about Nurse Chapel. Oh, does he? Oh, cool. But we don't we don't ever actually see her. Okay, I don't remember that one, but right, and we don't see her in the second movie either. But so always referred to, never seen. Right. She's kind of like Tim Allen's neighbor. Okay. <laughs> right. But anyways, I was a little I was a little put off the way they depicted Nurse Chapel here. I mean, why? She should look like Michelle Barrett. <laughs> right. Well. Ah oh, well. Whatever. That yeah. yeah. She's cute. She was only there for a little while. I do like how, you know, Kirk is all lovey-dovey and stuff. But um as soon as it dawns on him that Kirk's never late and there may be something up. He's all business. Right, that McCoy's never late. Exactly. All business. So he doesn't mean, you know, Chapel's like had her mouth open and ready for a little tongue action. And Kirk is like, there's danger afoot. Bye. <laughs> yep. Uh, I thought that was kind of funny. So do you think she really is into Kirk or do you think maybe she's just uh, stalling him because she knows what Pike's doing with McCoy? Huh? Ah, so you're saying that Nurse Chapel is not loyal to Dr. McCoy. Because I think she is more likely to be loyal to Dr. McCoy than she is to Pike. But who In knows? this universe, who knows? I, Everybody's backstabbing everybody. I just said likely. <laughs> who is she working with directly? Who is her direct superior? I don't know. What, what well, when I read it the first time, I assumed she was just she really just had the hots for Kirk. Because, you know, who wouldn't? And Kirk seems to be into it too. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I started thinking about it later. I was like, oh well, maybe she was trying to stall him because she knew, she really knew where McCoy was, even though she acts like she doesn't. Yeah. Well, maybe I will. I will acknowledge the possibility of that. But I do think that they have an existing relationship, romantic relationship, and uh, this is not the first time they have uh, been close. I don't think. Right. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. So... So what'd you think of the fight? I thought... uh, The fight's fine. I mean, they're all good and bloody. Um, You know, Pike is an imposing presence. I mean, they draw him to be pretty burly. And then... uh, Kirk is actually drawn to be a little bit more on the lanky, um, you know, fit and young side. So... um, He's actually kind of thin. So I can see Pike is a little older, more muscly, probably packs a bigger wallop on a punch, but then Kirk's always been a smart fighter. Uh, But they both have the same Starfleet training, right? Um, So I see it being a very even battle. Right. I I liked the way they depicted it as being an even battle. Right. Because too many times you... Kirk gets into a fight and, you know, no matter whether his opponent's a Superman or not, he's going to win. He finds a way to win. He's, he's that much better than everybody else. Yeah. So I like <laughs> I like this issue where until Henshaw showed up, I mean, it, it still was anybody's anybody's win, you know. 
They were both taking a licking. Yep. May I mention an unusual occurrence that occurred in one of the Taz episodes about Kirk fighting, where Kirk actually lost. What? Huh? Oh, amok time? No. He was, he was drugged. No, no. And plus he was fighting Spock. Come on. Spock's going to kick his ass in a fair fight. Although there has been times when Kirk has even able, been able to figure out a way to, to beat Spock. What paradox? He beat Khan. Khan was a Superman. But, he, super hold strength. Hold on, big guy. Hold on. <laughs> I agree. I mean, Khan, Kirk always wins, but he didn't win in the, I believe it was the Omega Glory, where he was fighting against another a Starfleet captain. Oh, really? And the other Starfleet captain actually beat him. So stick that in your pipe and smoke it. There you go. Now, well, that, I got... now that's the only time I can think of where somebody clearly beat Kirk in the, in the original show. Um, but, yeah, that did happen. Well, I have homework to do. I'm going you to do. go watch that episode. So it's watch Omega that. Glory? I, I'm pretty sure it's Omega Glory, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I will admit that uh, my knowledge of the original series is sometimes a little faulty. That's fine. Even though I, I know I've seen them all, but it's been a while. Oh, God. Uh, there's, if I wasn't watching them 15 jillion times when I was a kid growing up, every opportunity to watch it. Okay, so I thought the look on Pike's face when Kirk zapped the bodyguard was classic. I loved it. Because he's like, you can kind of see in that face, he's surprised, he's worried, and he realizes Kirk did something. Maybe he's even put together, well, no, I don't think he's gone that far. The main point is he knows Kirk is somehow behind it, and it, and right. it like dawns on him. If Kirk can do that to my bodyguard, he can do that to me. So, and why doesn't he? Why didn't he? Uh, because Kirk wanted to let him roast a little while longer? I don't know. Ego? I don't know. Right. You know, if you wanted to, if you were like a cat playing with a with a mouse, I could see why you'd like keep him around a little bit longer, but he doesn't have to. I mean, I I have no of no reason why he has to. Right. Nope, I didn't either. Yeah. Of course, it would have been too easy. He wouldn't have had the cool fight, and there you go. So cool. Ah, let's see. Anything? Uh, oh, another good thing about the fight: Kirk was going horizontal in the fight. You know, it's almost a re- <laughs> yeah, it's almost a requirement on page one hundred six of the uh, graphic novel. Yeah. Oh, another thing that kind of was annoying is Kirk was able to catch Pike's boot as it was coming down on his face. You know, he's, he's Pike was going to stomp him like a bug. And Kirk was able to catch the boot and twist Pike's foot, you know, the whole body away by twisting the foot. It's like, that's almost in the same area as the kick that got the, uh, right. the phaser out of his hand in the first place. Do you know how unlikely that is? That someone's arm strength would be enough to counteract a leg and a leg of a big man who also has gravity working for him. Right. Exceedingly unlikely. Deflecting it is one thing, but being able to catch it, push it back, and twist it. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no. Well, I've seen Batman do it, so I'm <laughs> pretty sure Kirk can do it, too. 
<laughs> yeah, that does seem like the kind of thing we, we've seen before, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, I, did, I didn't like that. That's another thing I wasn't crazy about. Right. Well, then Pike follows it up with grabbing Kirk by the neck and then somehow picking Kirk up and smashing him, you know, almost at a 90 degree angle to the floor against the wall. Yeah. And I was like, how did that not break his neck? I mean, that has to put some pressure on the neck to pick you up and then slam you against the wall. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And he, he, he gets up after that. I know. Well, it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger in any movie you'd like to name. But especially in the first Predator. Towards the end where he's taking his lumps. Right. From the Predator. Come on. He wouldn't be able to. He'd be in traction. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> We're bringing up Predator quite a bit I know. Today. Isn't that funny? Hmm. Anyway, that's my last comment. I, I Oh, let me just say that thoroughly enjoyed it. Love the characters. Love the situation they were in. And love that it was... Um, Five issues of joy. Right. And I love seeing Picard in the Mirror Universe uh, setting also. Yeah, just a completely one-off. And, it was good. And not only one-off there, but it's early in his career. You know, back on the um, Stargazer or Star Ripper? Star, Star Destroyer. Breaker. Breaker. Star, Star, Star Breaker. There you go. Yeah, when he still looked like Tom Hardy. <laughs> yeah, he does. This guy, this guy looks like Bane. I don't know why. <laughs> If you just had the mask there, yeah, the respirator. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed the five issues, and I really liked the way it ended. Yeah. That last page where Kirk's kind of like looking at everybody's sideways Ooh. glances, and then he's remembering the words of Pike. Yeah, yeah. that's a really yeah, good there's point. There's no happiness while you're sitting in that damn chair. That's right, because you're always going to be looking over your shoulder. Right. Back to and we already know that Sulu hates him, because... Kirk got the Orion girls and Sulu didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I would have been, I would have been kicking up more of a fuss, uh, you know, when that was going on. But whatever. <laughs> okay. All right, that's it. Uh, well, did you say you wanted to go with a who's who on on who's who was oh, on whose side? Or right? Yeah. Okay. Just just briefly. It's like uh, we definitely know Spock. We definitely know McCoy. Scotty pretty much, although he's kind of good to go either way, but he's more Kirk than, than Pike. Um, it was only Kirk because Kirk Kirk has a tendency of uh, killing people who don't go with him. Because he was like, I just I, I want to keep my head, I'll go with you. <sighs> okay, well, to my point, you know, he was right. with him, but, you know, one of those borderline right. cases. Um, right. You figure the Ensign was, the new Ensign. The Yeoman? Mike. Oh, I'm sorry, the Yeoman. 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 Good point. But we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure because you didn't actually see her do anything beneficial for Kirk. But, hey, you never know when somebody's going to be uh, helpful to you, so you put as many people in place as you can. Uh, Or maybe there was just a piece of the pie that Kirk did have her do, and they just never showed it in the book. I don't know. But it can't be a coincidence that they put that panel, that black and white panel, where Kirk is killing Marla. Was that her name? Well, whatever. Well, we don't know that that was her. It looked like her, though. It did look like her, so, but it couldn't have you been. Know, his, his hottie from... Yeah, you're right. Unless this is another dimension, but let's not go back into that. Um, <laughs> and uh, who else? I mean, well, Henshaw is in his court. Um, Eventually, yeah. The Lee, the bad guy, 
is in uh, Lee the bodyguard is in clearly in Pike's court. Um, what about Lee Kelso? Well, he didn't have much to do after that first issue. Right? I know, but he did deliver the shuttle to him, to Pike. Now we know that Kirk planted the. I think he. Well, yeah, he, he said he the planted bomb. the bomb. But was Lee in on it, or was he just like an innocent bystander? Because he didn't die when the shuttle exploded. Although you did see a body in the shuttle explosion, you did see that there was a body in the explosion going away from the explosion. But Lee right. was standing like next to the captain. If anybody was further away, for, he was at least as far away as Pike was from the explosion. So I don't think right. he died there. I don't, I, I, I don't know, but I don't think he's in on it. Okay, well, just throwing it out. But there. I have nothing to back it up. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So that's who else? Um, I think that's everybody. Well, we definitely know Sulu. Sulu's definitely on Pike's True. side. True, good point. We we don't know anything about Ahura. Right. Or Chekhov, if he's even in this one. Yeah, yeah. Probably isn't um, too early. And like I said, Nurse Chapel could go anyway, because she could have been purposely trying to delay him, or she could have been just... Mm -hmm having the hots for him because she's already on his side so right yeah i don't know that, that seems about it okay cool great effort love it when they investigate these little nooks and crannies right yeah so i thought this might be our last uh, mirror universe episode for a while but um it seems that with uh, idw issue number 50 of the ongoing mm -hmm. Um, you know, they already kind of did a couple of Mirror Universe episodes mm -hmm. on the ongoing, yep. but it looks like now they're truly saying we're going to that Mirror Universe uh, with issue number 50. So when we eventually get to that far in the ongoing, uh, we'll be able to revisit another Mirror Universe. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there will continue to be things popping up. Such a rich possibilities of storytelling. Okay. So, shall we go on to Alien Spotlight Cardassians? Let's do it. Excellent. So this one was published December 2009. Written by Arnie and Andy Schmidt. Art is by Augustin Padilla. Color by Jay Brown. Lettering by Robbie Robbins. And edits by Scott Dunbuyer. The cover is a very dark one. It shows a very determined, very dangerous, and very angry Cardassian standing in a landscape of fiery destruction, ready to use a shotgun-slash-broadsword-looking weapon on anything that moves. The cover promises a very action-packed and violent story inside. The time is just after the Dominion War. The Alpha Quadrant allies are victorious. The Cardassian Union is shattered. 800 million Cardassians, both civilian as well as military, are dead. The price for betraying their former Dominion allies. The founder that ordered the slaughter is in the hands of the Federation and in safekeeping as a critical component of the Dominion surrender. That surrender ended the war and is a safeguard against further violence by the Jem'Hadar. Not everyone is happy with the arrangement. Federation Prison and Key Alpha. A dark cross between the Death Star and a Borg time-traveling sphere is being approached by a small ship filled with members of a Cardassian splinter group named the Rom Knights. They want payback for the millions that died on Cardassia Prime at the hands of the Dominion. 
They are there to kill the Dominion commander that ordered the attack on their home planet. A knight named Clist is organizing the members and calling out specific assignments. She appears to be the leader at first. One of the knights named Backlor is called their ticket home and has a very large apparatus on his back. A male Cardassian we later find out is called Demos is the true leader and gives an inspirational speech that talks about revenge against the Dominion and specifically the commander that gave the order. He says they must take back what it truly means to be Cardassian. Fired up for their mission, they begin. Lock Trick departs their small ship first and positions himself to cut off the prison installation's power grid in 90 seconds. Volktar is next and reports he is in position. The remaining five knights beam into the prison. Some make it in. One named Backlor materializes into a bulkhead and quickly dies. Another named Volktar materializes in a cargo bay way out of position. He's supposed to be in engineering. This should not be happening. From within cramped quarters, Demos, the leader, signals them with orders to adapt to the situation and accomplish their assignments. His lieutenant, Clist, starts to make her way to the holding cells to execute the prisoner since she thinks Demos has no way out of his cramped quarters. Demos proves resourceful and finds an explosive way out. Demos tells Clist he was trained by the best. As he runs out of the trap, he remembers back to his training, when he met a Bajoran in a Starfleet uniform named Kira. He was just an agent back then for the Federation and Bajorans. Being half Bajoran and half Cardassian, who was born when his Bajoran mother was raped by a Cardassian, he states he has a deep and everlasting hatred for the Cardassian Union and people. Kira called him to duty, here to learn from the best, who turns out to be Garak. He snaps back into the present and completes his short chat and continues his journey to engineering. Other members of the assault team stun the Federation prisoners they run into. Demos orders not to kill anyone if they don't have to. One of the teams successfully takes out the station's main power with explosive and streaks away by use of a cool-looking jetpack. Christ says Volktar was taken out and explains why she thinks they are up against a changeling. Demos thinks back again into a mission where he, Garak, and Kira successfully blew up a Cardassian supply convoy. Demos makes it plain how much he hates Cardassians, but saying that once the war is over, he will find a really big bomb and use it to make Bajor safe. Cliss comes up from behind Demos and snaps him out of his reverie. Cliss is concerned that the mission is going sideways and that they will likely die. Demos says they are soldiers on a mission. All soldiers die eventually. Might as well be today. Cliss suggests that she will give cover fire to Demos as he enters the cell block. He has the best chance of reaching the imprisoned founder. Demos agrees, then thinks back to the past when he was on a mission with Garak. Then, too, Demos was faced with a choice between the success of his mission and his own death. He took death and jumped into a radioactive reactor control room. His sacrifice led to the mission's success, but in the process, nearly died of radiation exposure. He snaps back to the presence 
when the door codes do not open the cell block door. Chris says all the things that went wrong on the mission must be due to an infiltrator on the inside that sabotaged the mission. Demos says she is right, then blasts her point blank. Demos thinks back to his burnt husk of a body, lying in a hospital bed while he is being wheeled into surgery. He remembers asking Kira for something. Kira stares at him incredulously and says they will make it happen if it's what he really wants. As he is wheeled into the other room, Chris tells him good luck and goodbye. Demos snaps back into the present, telling Cliss she oversold her concern about a changeling protector and then a betrayer within the team. He asks her to tell him her secrets, but her dying words say she only talks to Cardassians. Demos finds an activated transmitter on her person and figures out she was working with someone else. Another flashback happens, but this time it is not from Demos's memory. It's Kira and Garak talking about Demos in the past tense. They wonder if he is a hero or a villain. Kira says he died on the operating table. There is more Garak wants to say to Kira, but thinks better of it and says nothing at all. Back in the present, a shadowy figure emerges into the room. It's Garak holding a very large gun. He walks up to Demos and asks him about that one last bomb he is planting. How many Cardassians do you think you can kill with this one? Demos says, it had to be Garak. Garak says he has been waiting a long time for Demos. His secrets make him a true Cardassian. Demos tries to co-op Garak by saying he should want revenge on the murderers of so many Cardassians. Garak says the price of that revenge is too high. He speaks of the Cardassian people having a unique opportunity to change, to move beyond their old ways. Demos says Cardassians don't change. Garak asks Demos why he does not want to see Cardassia change from the cruel, scheming, brutal people that tormented his Bajoran mother. Demos raises his rifle, telling Garak to get out of his way. Garak raises his equally large rifle and makes the case for the Cardassian people having been blasted back into the Stone Age. They are survivors that can survive and rise from the ashes reborn into a better race. Rebirth into something better. Garak gets Demos to admit that his plan all along was to kill the Founder and trigger Jem'Hadar retribution that would wipe out even more of the Cardassian population maybe enough to make the race unsustainable. Garak says he can make another choice, take another path. Both men make it plain they will not back down. Guns pointing at each other, mutually assured destruction. Finally, Garak asks, what will it be, Demos? Revenge or rebirth? The end? <laughs> Which way which way did he pick? <laughs> I think that's very cool. Uh, well, what the great thing is, the book lets you decide. It lets the reader decide. So what do you think? He can't succeed. I don't think Demos can succeed. Because I do think this is another one of those redemption stories in the Star Trek universe. And maybe eventually even jerks like the Cardassians end up becoming part of the Federation in the long run. 
Sure. So, but the question, so that, I definitely, I believe that. So the question is, does he put his weapon down or do they blow each other's heads off? That's the part I'm not sure about. Well, we know Garrick probably doesn't get his head blown off. Well, okay, then you're saying everything's nice. It's a, it's a Disney ending. Demos um, realizes the error of his ways. He accepts the fact that so many Cardassians have been destroyed, takes that as a victory, and backs down. Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I sure would not want to see Garak die. No, he can't. He's die. always been one of my favorite DS9 characters. Right. No, he's always good. I. I... Like that, he's you never quite know what side he's on. Exactly, he's a mystery man. Just to be contrary, a reservoir dog's ending. They sh- they kill each other. <laughs> All right. Well, then that was the end of Gary. <laughs> Not that it matters. It's gonna. Yeah. Whatever. Anyway. So uh, yeah, I love this comic. Love it. No, I thought it was good. And I, uh, you and I talked about it offline a little bit. Um, I love that it, it tied into just some random episodes of Deep Space Nine, right? Uh, like, like the whole um, their whole secret mission to train Cardassians uh, during the know, Dominion War. During the Dominion War, very cool. You know, though, though this half Cardassian, half Bajoran guy is not mentioned in that episode. No. There's nothing to say Apparently. that he couldn't have been there, so yeah. I, I liked it. Yeah, and either I had never seen that episode or I completely spaced it out. Because like I was texting you, w- Kira's wearing a Starfleet uniform. I don't remember ever seeing her in a Starfleet uniform because, of course, she's a member of the uh, Bajoran military. Right. But um, but then you said – you sent me the photo. It's like, wow, I stand corrected. I, I don't remember ever seeing that. Or I completely forgot seeing it. Right. In that episode, uh, she wears it just because the the uh, Cardassians didn't want to hear anything from a Bajoran, but they wouldn't have a problem uh, listening to uh, a Federation officer, Starfleet officer. So that's why she was wearing it, even though she technically wasn't uh, Starfleet. Right. So, yep. When when I first read it, I thought this was taking place after Deep Space Nine. So when she was wearing the uniform, I was thinking, oh, okay, well, I know that in the Expanded Universe stuff, she does eventually start wearing the uniform, you know, because Bajor becomes part of the Federation. But upon revisiting it, uh, I definitely think, um, you know, that first part takes place during the seven seasons of Deep Space Nine. And then the current part is taking place after but still before Bajor becoming part of the Federation, if that made any sense. Yeah, right. Yeah, so very layered story, a gritty story. A lot of things going on, and they don't necessarily take the time to walk you through it. So you got to gotta pay attention and maybe even read it a few times. It took me several times before I understood everything. And I still might have missed right. something. But when I was first reading, it was like, well, who are all these people? I mean, on, on the attack team. And right. um, the girls seem to be in charge. And then it's like, oh, no, the, the guy, Demos, is in charge. Okay, fine. Um, and it's like, anyway, it was very – and then, well, anyway, it was just very interesting. I had to work on this one. Dominic. Right. 
So. <laughs> now, when I was reading it, I was like, whew, I'm glad I'm not synopsizing this one because, well, man, it jumps all over the place. I, I apologize for the longness of it. But unless you were just going to assume people are reading it and they're getting the nuances, you kind of had to go into detail. Anyway. Right. Okay, another thing, a general comment is, as I'm reading this thing, I am reminded of the Dynamite Terminator versus RoboCop comic titled okay. Kill a Human. Right. So we, we did this one like back in 193A or something like that, maybe, but I'm not admitting anything. All right. Um, about the possibility of uh, April Fool's things going on. But there was a grittiness to that one. There, especially in the artwork, there was multiple stuff going on that you had to pay attention to. And in the end, it had a great ending, which was very unsatisfying because we're human beings. But it was still really cool ending. This issue was reminding me of that series of issues for the ways I just mentioned. Right. And especially if you take the path that you were talking about where you could see it that that they could both be killing themselves at the end of the issue. Right. That is very possible. Yep, definitely. I could see that. Yeah, overall, I really enjoyed the artwork. I, I thought their plane was a little hard to follow. It seemed a little, you know, uh, unnecessarily complicated when you have when you really have transporters and why they were starting to be beamed in the walls and things like that. It looked cool, and it was cool for the story, but I, I never understood why... Why was everything going so awry? Because of Clist. She she was the, you know, she's like the second in command, the the, right. the tactician that's working out all the details. And she basically is the one that was running the transporters. So So she did do it on purpose. She did all she killed of it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because she was working with Garak. So she was the insider working with Garak to foil the mission. So she transported Demos purposely into like a um, a very narrow space behind the bulkheads, so he wouldn't get out. He would be out of the picture. Um, okay. I guess it would have been even more effective if she did to him what she did to the other guy, Bayclock or whatever the guy's name was, began with a B, where right. she beamed him directly into a bulkhead. Now that's the guy who was supposed to be their quote ticket out, and he had this big, huge thing on his back, like backpack kind of thing that almost looked like a really small runabout. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what that was. That the was that a, a a portable transporter? Was that some kind of a long range backpack? I don't know, but um, yeah. That wasn't the the jetpack guy. No, no, I that guess was it a different guy. The, yeah, the, no. the guy who set the charges to blow the reactor for power, he appeared to get away. And by the way, I thought that was a great panel. Very nicely drawn. Very cool looking. You know, so he's got the cool looking jetpack on that he's blasting away, and he's got a uh, face mask respirator kind of thing and maybe mm -hmm. even a, like a clear plastic or transparent aluminum thing over his face but then it looks like his hair is open to space so um i guess cardassians can take the vacuum pretty good anyway i thought that looked cool only on the back of their heads uh, yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
So no. what, what the heck did that did their quote ticket out? What did he have on his back? And did they really ever figure that out, or they just put something big on his back and said, "Okay"? Or did the writers yeah, actually was, know it, what it was? Just looked cool. Well, it looked cool. I just, oh, oh. anyway. Yeah, I don't know. All right, and upon first reading, I, I didn't understand what Kira and the guy was talking about when he gets rolled off to the surgery and supposedly oh, yeah. dies. Right. And then upon rereading it, um, I think I got the answer, but I was curious as to what your what you thought it was. Well, I think he ended his life as as a half breed, and mm-hmm. when he finally came out of surgery, they made him look like a hundred percent. Kardashian. Kardashian. There's a yep. there's a really great two panels. I think there are two panels on oh what page is it? it? It's it's near the beginning. It's like in the first couple of pages where they show right next to each other Demos's face, and one is in black and white because it's in the past, and then the other one is in color because it's in the present, and you see the two different versions of Demos's face. One is Cardassian and has the spoon on the forehead. And the other one is in his half-breed Bajoran, where he doesn't have the spoon on his forehead, but he does have ridged nose like a Bajoran. And right. I thought that, you know, I didn't notice that until I went back over the book like the third time. But it's like, cool. I missed that at first. But that is great. Right. So Yeah, it was the nose thing that got me. I, I Every time it showed him in the past, he always had that cloak on. So you, I could never tell if he had the spoon on his on his forehead or not. But he definitely has the Bajoran mm-hmm. nose. And he doesn't in, in the current pictures, which I totally missed the first yeah. time. That last flashback, and I mentioned it in the synopsis, Demos could not have seen that. <laughs> he couldn't. He was not in on that. It was Kira and Garak. So it's like every black and white flashback we saw before, Demos was involved. He was thinking back on it. But this last one is one Demos couldn't, couldn't have seen. And I, I really think right. it's highly doubtful he could have been aware of it. Um, and they they clearly talk about him being dead. And so they must be speaking figuratively. The half-breed is dead, and now he's a full-fledged Cardassian who's going to go into deep cover. Right. So that's that's what I think happened. Yeah, but I mean, but why did – I mean, what did Kira think he was going to do? She didn't really question him much. No, but I think he basically said, make me, you know, I'm all screwed up anyway. You're going to have to reconstruct my skin anyway if I'm able to survive, period. And you might as well make me look 100% Cardassian so I can go under deep cover. Right. I assume that's it. And I think I did find the panel you're talking about. There, There is one shot where it shows him in the past without the cloak, and he does not have the spoon. And it's right next to a picture of him in the current uh, with the full Cardassian. Very good. Very yeah, good. Yeah, it's um, page eight, I think. It's in the upper uh, yep. upper right hand corner of the page. Right on the on the on the digital file. It's page eight. Right. Y- yes, that's what I'm using. Right. I don't know. I don't know what. The, oh, you're using it too. Yeah. I thought you had the issue. I wish they would number these. Yeah, it'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? So, in the current time frame, he's screaming, Valkhtari! Who just got shot. And then, uh, in the other one, 
the the in the past. He's screaming Kira. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, good. Very very subtle too because I missed it. I missed it the first three times through. Now the cool thing about when you do the synopsis is you're forced to go through it because <laughs> you're you know taking down the notes and stuff, and you really you know you're trying to get things right. I I usually understand the stories more than when I'm just taking notes. Right. Especially this one. This one's a bugger. Yeah. All right. What else you got? Oh, and here's my last comment. Uh, I found it interesting how Demos is carrying a flashy gold and silver colored BFG, his gun. Okay. Um, and he's supposed to be the commando. Yet Garak is carrying a flat finish dark gray BFG. And, you know, you'd think it would be the other way around. I mean, you'd think the commando, the guy coming in special ops, whatever, infiltrating an enemy base would be having something that is dull, dark, not oh. not shining, <laughs> flashing. not flashing. But good God, Demos, there's a couple, there's multiple panels during the assault where they show almost like a little lens flare in the panel coming off of his weapon. Right. Which is, uh, you know, kind of like, kind of a gold yellow color. It's like, yeah, definitely not what you want to do when you're trying to hide in the shadows. No, not at all. I question the choice. It looks cool. Oh, it looks cool. It looks very cool. In fact, when they're holding it face to face, he's got a much cooler looking gun than Garak. Although Garak is is kind of cool too. It's just all dark gray. Right. Yeah. And then I love the way it ends with a question mark. Right. The end? Question mark? Yes. <laughs> no, this is good. I, I really like the post, post-series post timeline just because we get so little of it. Right. Aside from the novels. Right. And I think they could have done very interesting things with that. Right. So, so some of the alien spotlights, like the the Romulan one and, and even the Klingon ones mm-hmm. kind of spun off into their own miniseries. Right. So there's a Romulan miniseries and a Klingon miniseries. But the, the Cardassian one never never really did anything else. It, there's no Cardassian miniseries in its own. Right. Well. Which is too bad. It is too bad. But if you're going to have a little miniseries, you got to have it with Klingons and Romulan and have a Romulan one. Right. I mean, you gotta have that. Right. But if you're gonna, yeah, maybe we don't have, maybe we don't have enough funding or think we'll sell enough. You gotta cut <laughs> somebody. Yeah, cut the Cardassians. Right. All right. Anything else? All right. So next week uh, we're going to do what we promised to do a while back before we decided to start doing uh, the uh, finish off the Mirror Universe stuff, which is um, DC Comics. Right, 18, 20, and 21. So the reason why we're skipping 19 is that we did that back in the uh, post-motion picture era series. Right. Uh, it's the one that was written by Walter Koenig. So we already did that one, so we're doing 18, 20, and 21. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, okay well, well, that's it. Yeah, this one went a little long, so let's wrap it up. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. On the review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. 
All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic, second name book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.